So I want to begin today. I, I, I have to be careful because my motivation sometimes for things is, is in my head, I think it's, it's obvious, but today I want to make this more obvious. So go to Matthew chapter 28 for a moment and let me explain what I'm coming to. So it was like maybe a few weeks or maybe in a month ago, um, I was asked a question from a congregant here at the church, just visiting. Um, I doubt that they're here. So if you're here, Hey, good job. Thanks for helping me for my sermon. Um, I don't think they are, but, uh, the conversation kind of went something like this. Uh, they said, Hey, you know, I, I, um, you know, I don't know if I understand your theology. It seems like you teach that uh, good works lead to, or salvation leads to good works, and that seems like you've made good works and salvation come alongside one another, and so that's just like kind of legalism, and I just don't understand how you believe that. I'm like, wow, nice to meet you. Uh, that's great. And so I said, where do you get that from? And so we talked a little further, and I talked about how the idea that in the Bible, the idea that good works proceed from our salvation is the normative picture of what Christianity looks like, right? That's the thing that comes out of it, and that's what being a disciple is. And the person says, well, not everyone's a disciple. I said, well, I'm sorry, what do you mean? And he said, well, some people are just converts, believers, and being a disciple some other category. And I, I was flabbergasted, and I just had to look at some scriptures. I showed them right away. I'm like, I don't know where you got that from, and, uh, and I learned it was from a local church here in town. Uh, but in any case, it really fired me up a little bit for this sermon, which was God's preparation. So thank you, angel of the Lord. Uh, but in this case, if you look at Matthew 28, this is the, the Great Commission language. I just want to understand, first of all, what the Great Commission is. And so if you notice here what Jesus, the risen Christ says, we've heard it a million times and never let that stop you from seeing it again. He says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them all, now this is his words before he departs, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's establishing his authority to now give a command at which he does right here. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, a few things about this passage that I want to make clear. First of all, there's only one, uh, one verb in that last sentence and is the verb make disciples. The word go, you could also emphasize as an imperative, even because the order of the words, but regardless, it, it cha doesn't change. Like there's one main verb in that sentence, which is to make disciples. So if you were to summarize his command, yes, you're to go. Yes, okay. But the command is to make disciples. That's the issue. And how we're supposed to make disciples is to teach him, teach people as we go, baptizing him and teaching all that he commanded us. And what is one of the commands he taught us is to go and make disciples. And so if you look at the mission statement of this church, we don't just say we follow the great commission. We say we want to make disciple making disciples through the personal investment of our lives. And so this, that encompasses this idea that we're going to go make disciples who then are going to do what Jesus commanded, which is going to go make disciples and on and on and so forth and so forth. But what's key about this passage is what it doesn't say. First of all, notice this, this is a command, an extreme and important command. So if you worked for me and I was a, a really highfalutin boss, if I was high up in the military, let's say if I was high up somewhere, I gave you a command you'd, and you wrote it down to make sure you get it right. You probably wouldn't be sloppy about wanting to fulfill it. And yet, I would argue, and so in many cases, we are tending to be a bit sloppy because notice what he did not say. He did not say, go, therefore, and make converts of all nations. He does not say, go, therefore, and make believers of all nations. He does not say, go, therefore, and make fans, likes, uh, don't make my name famous in all nations. He doesn't say, go live the life, your best life now. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, this is a key thing because if we're called to make disciples and not converts, that's a big deal. You say to yourself, Matt, why are you 
why are you making it such a big deal? Isn't that the same thing? And I would argue it's decidedly not the same thing. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians, I want to use this to establish the title of the sermon. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and if you're new at this church and I'm flipping around and you can't keep up, that just means you've got to train more. And so just start practicing and you'll start keeping up. The problem is with you, not me, and I love you. Welcome to the church. All right, 1 Corinthians 3, 10. So Paul's writing here, and he, he's talking, and we're going to really see this passage in full as we go through the passage today. But notice what Paul says about our ministry, about building up the church. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, <clears throat> I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, when he's talking here, he's talking about building up the church. He, in, first, in the previous verses, he says, verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And now he's talking about building that up. And so what he's describing in this building, I would argue in this passage here in Corinthians, is the process of building up the church, adding more stones to the building that is Christ, right? Adding more lumber to the building that is Christ. And the stones being us, as Peter says, we are the living stones of the temple that is, that is the Holy Spirit. That's like this basic, like, welcome to church, this is some theology. But what, notice what he says about our process of making disciples, of adding to the church, of fulfilling the Great Commission. Notice what he says. There's no other foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So this is no other truth. We're all building upon that foundation. And he says, now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So there's, there's two categories, essentially. One is a category of precious metals. The other is a category of things that you would find all around you in agrarian society. Right? So no, you, again, the, the precious gold, silver, precious stones and wood, hay, straw. He goes, if we're building on Christ, if we're making disciples. I would argue this references to two kinds of people. Some people are being, going to be considered gold, silver, precious stones. You're like, Matt, uh, I'm not sure I like this. It says, um, he, goes, if the, he goes, each one's work will be manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So in other words, when we look at this, what it's saying is if our work, we tend to read this sometimes and think, um, I was, I was charitable. And he's like, we're going to put charity on the fire and see if charity burns up. That's not what it's just speaking about. It's speaking about the gold, silver, precious stones versus wood, hay, stubble, straw. So the idea being here, uh, what's at stake is the disciples, whether they're genuine or not. Right? He goes, the day will disclose it. If the work that anyone's built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then he goes on, don't you know that you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let me just remind you, he, he sandwiches this passage in the first place saying that we're God's building, and the second place remind us that we're his temple. And in the middle, he's talking about how to build it. So again, I would argue that this is a passage about sort of making disciples. And the question we have to ask ourselves, if the distinction matters, one thing we build with, one thing we do will be burnt up. It won't work. And the other one will. So in other words, if I'm doing my job right as a pastor, let's say, and I'm fulfilling the Great Commission and we're making disciples, the goal would be when I get to heaven and I see my Lord Jesus and I get to be with him, I would hopefully be able to present him the people that I tried to build his church with through him. 
And they would be with me. They would be tested through. They're, they're actually genuine. In fact, Peter talks about some of those tests, the genuineness of our faith being tested through the trials of this life. But I would bring you to heaven. Wouldn't it be great, the reward, to get to heaven and see y'all's face there? I would be excited. I'm like, wow, I've used my time well on planet Earth. But imagine having a large church full of people made of wood, hay, stubble, and straw. And you yourself get to heaven, let's say, and with the best of intentions, and say, Lord, I want to present to you I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry. I want to present to you nothing. That's what's at stake. Uh, that, that's what's going on here. Um, so what's, what's happening here when we look at this picture is this. What, what, if this distinction matters, right? If we want to make sure that we're building properly on gold, silver, precious stones, you know, only those will suffice. The question is, how do you build? How do we make disciples? How do we do that and not build on wood, hay, stubble, and straw? And which leads me to my first point. Now, I don't know, the, you guys, the, the thing doesn't work right now. The, it says it's reconnecting here. Um, so can you go to the next slide for me, Jeremy? Or... Brian or someone can go to the next slide because it's broken for me. Um, there we go. So in this next section here, um, if you notice, we says uh, the first part of our passage, our mandate matters. So look at our passage now, Acts chapter 18. Okay, Acts chapter 18, verse 18. And this is the, is there's three movements. Now, this passage is part of a larger passage, which is going to talk a bit about uh, the John the Baptist issue, Old Testament, New Testament stuff. But today in the shorter passage, I want to focus on, look at all those verses. I want to focus on discipleship for a minute. Okay, so the, this first section here is really a soft launch of the of Paul's third missionary journey. So um, it, as Paul goes to launch it, um, hold on a second. I'm just answering a text. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, my thing went down, so I can't control it. Now I can control it just fine. All right, now we're good. Look at that, I fixed it. All right, so as Paul's writing here, and he, and he comes, this, this is a, a transition from his second missionary journey to his third missionary journey. It's like a whisper. You barely even notice it. And there's a couple bit details here that can kind of sidetrack us a little bit. But this first basic section, it says after this, after what? Well, Paul was in Corinth. We just kind of studied this. It was a big uh, a, a scene where we talked about the providence of God to bring Paul encouragement and how God works in his ministry. And now he, after these things, he stays many days longer, okay, and then took leave of the brothers and he set sail for Syria. And with him, this couple that he had met in, in, in Priscilla and Aquila that he met back in Corinth. And so they went with him here. And so they came with him on his journey. And then at Sinedri had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now people get stuck on that. What does that mean? Who's he? First of all, the, the Greek is vague here who the he is referring to. It could be referring to Paul or it could be referring to Achilla. We don't know. Now, most people say it's probably Paul. He probably made a Nazarite vow and he's going to Jerusalem. All right, maybe we just don't know. The reason people think it probably is that is because in the New King James, the King James, they have an added verse that came later. The earliest manuscripts don't have it, which tried to tell us that, oh, well, he did this because he was under a vow and then he was going to go to Jerusalem to fin finish the vow, which is most likely an extrapolation. And it might be right. But at this point, we don't know who cut their hair and why. And Luke doesn't care. Luke doesn't care. He doesn't want us to be curious. It doesn't really even matter. It's just given to show us and to back up some of the details for why they were in what place they were going. That's kind of the key. But notice as he goes, he was under a vow, they're going and it says, and they came to Ephesus. So the, the emphasis here is that they were on their way to do stuff, but they end up coming to Ephesus. Ephesus is the biggest city thus far they're going to come to. This third missionary journey is basically in Ephesus the whole time for like three years. Most of Paul's letters he wrote from Ephesus. Ephesus was a huge city with a huge uh, population of Jews, a, a big population of Jews in Ephesus. They also had this great, uh, this 
terrible um, uh, statue, temple, idol to the uh, Artemis of the Ephesians. We're going to see a lot of that come up. So that's all going to come up in chapter 19. But in this initial sense, he comes into Ephesus, and uh, they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. That is Achilla and Priscilla, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So essentially he gets there, he goes, hey, hold on, I'm going to go in there. He tests it out, all right? And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Now, I would argue that Paul in Ephesus sees a fruitful ministry. He goes in and sees people are interested in what he's about to say. And he's excited, but he can't stay. Now, is the reason he's leaving because he's trying to fulfill a Nazarite vow he had made earlier in his life? Is it for other reasons? We don't know. But I do know that no matter what the case is, he doesn't immediately return to Ephesus. He has something else important to do. It says, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. That's the sending church. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So before going to Ephesus, before starting this new work in Ephesus, Paul's like, I have something else I need to do. And he goes back home to his home base and recharges for a little bit, and then goes back to the other churches he had started, and he's strengthening them one by one. Now, there's a couple details I think is important here. First of all, in this day and age, we sometimes hear rhetoric that makes it clear that the goal of our mission is evangelism and making converts. And if the only, if the Great Commission was about making converts, then Paul is being silly. How dare he leave an open investment in front of him to go back and to strengthen the ones he had, right? Strengthening the other churches implies that he understands the Great Commission in a way we tend to not that is to say, he's going to go back and strengthen because he knows that the command is to make disciples. A disciple is a follower of Christ, a learner, a follower that it speaks of something different than mere conversion. Now, you got to, I want you to contrast this with today's church, just for a minute. In today's church, the modern evangelical church, the basic plan that came out, I mean, really in the 90s, you see it really flourish. And we'll talk about why boomers in a second. It's you guys that are in trouble. It's not your fault, but it's your fault. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but basically the church now basically has created this scenario where you get as many people into the building as possible. And my job is to be an evangelist. And so it doesn't matter how you come in. That's where the pragmatic sort of like, Hey, we're giving out, you know, Nintendo 64s. That's old school. Uh, we're giving out, you know, whatever things people like these days, we're giving it out to you, right? So you come out weed, we're giving you weed, right? Come out. We're going to give you marijuana. <laughs> um, but, but the, the basic idea is that we're going to get you into church. It doesn't matter how, okay? We're going to do a sermon about relationships or sex or something interesting. And we're going to get you to church. And then somewhere in that message that's practical to you as a non-believer, I'm going to get the gospel in there somehow, all leading up to this big giant payoff. We're at the end of the service. I'm going to say with the music that has now reached into the strings, I'm going to say, now with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that resonated with you, if you feel like you want to make Jesus the captain of your ship or whatever we want to say, <laughs> every head bowed, every eye closed, no one can see, just raise your hand up. And why do we want your, because we don't, we want to take away all the incentive or all the, the, the disincentive, rather, to be nervous about someone seeing it. So we're like, everyone's, no one's looking. So now no one's looking now, so just raise your hand so I can see it. And then what do you always hear? Thank you very much. Okay, yep, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. And then it's like, okay, in just a second now, we're going to raise our hands, our, our eyes up, and then everyone's going to come down the aisle. And so it's, it's a trick. 
It's a, it's a trick. The whole thing's a trick. It's like when you go to look at uh, Disneyland, like we'll give you Disney bucks. If you come listen to this one presentation about this, this thing, you're like, great. And if you stay like one more presentation, oh, and then if you buy this, you may as well buy this. And the next thing you know, you own a timeshare somewhere, <laughs> right? And so the whole experience is an elaborate timeshare celebration, which is all to get you to pay. It's all to get you to come down that aisle. And they'll play the music over and over again as people come down. And a lot of times the same people come down every week too. Now, you can get saved in this environment. Don't get me wrong. God works, okay? But the motivation, the, the payoff is the conversion. The payoff is how many people made a decision today? How many notches? How many people can I calculate? Now, the people doing this are not wicked people. I know lots of them. They're awesome. <clears throat> Their motives are good even. I just think they missed the Great Commission. Because our goal is to make disciples. Paul doesn't do that. Paul has a great opportunity now to do a big old, you know, revival. And he says, no, I'm going to go back to the churches I went and strengthen them. For so many people, here's the argument. You come here, like, where does the strengthening happen in the church? Oh, you got to go feed yourself. You be a self-feeder. My job as a pastor is evangelism. You could go do that in the groups. I'm like, the, the number one job of the pastor we're going to see is to equip the saints. Not to, that's the evangelism is what you all do. And so that's the idea. There's such a twisted thing. And I just want to correct it today. That's all I want to do. I'll correct that today. So the idea of disciples, first of all, is important. Paul understood this. Now, just, just follow me for a second. Go back to Acts chapter 6. I want to first make the case that there is no such thing, zero such thing. And there's a lot of verses. And we're going to, you know what? Let's just do it. Let's just do it. Let's, we're going to go through them. I'm going to go. You're going to try to watch me go because I don't know if you're going to keep up. But I'm going to just look at it. And we're going to see how many times the, the, the Bible, Paul, just in the book of Acts, refers to believers and converts as disciples. That is the, 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 the term we're going to use. And I want to basically take this part of the sermon and I want to smother you with the amount of scripture text so you can't wiggle out of the conclusion that there's no such thing as, as a Christian that's not a disciple. This is all I want to do. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Oh my goodness. There you go. I should just stop right there. And the 12, some of the full number of disciples. Verse two, look at verse seven. The word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied. Well, who are those guys? The special people? Chapter nine, verse one. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, if you actually think that there's a separate subcategory, Paul's only mad at that sub subcategory of people called disciples. Give me a break. All right. Verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus. Cool. Verse 19. And taking food, he was strengthened. That doesn't seem like that was the one I wanted. Verse 25. <laughs> and when he came come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. So Paul wanted to join the disciples. They're all afraid of him for they not believe that he was a disciple. Well, when did Paul become a disciple? I thought he just became a believer. Okay, you get the point. Uh, look at verse 36. Um, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. Wow, there's another one of those disciples, those, those pesky people. Verse 38, since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men. Notice in every case is a reference to the church. Look at chapter 11, 29. Um, I think. Yeah, 11, 29, not 10, 29. Thank you. All right, 11, 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. 1352. I love that people are trying to keep up simply because I, I egged you on. It's great. If I didn't say anything, you're like, whatever. But now you're like, oh, yeah. 1352. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Look at 1420. All right. He says this. It says, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. All right. It goes further 21. When they preached the gospel of the city, he made many disciples. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. 
I mean, that's pretty good. Look at verse 28. Uh, and they remain no little time with the disciples. Chapter 15, 10. We're almost there. Um, now, they're, they're, why are you putting God on the test by placing no yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we've been able to bear? So again, the reference to the disciples is the normative term for the Christians. Chapter 16, Paul came to Derby and Lystra, a disciple there named Timothy. There's another one of those guys. Chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. That's coming up, right? Uh, uh, verse 9 of chapter 19. But when some became stubborn and continued unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Look at verse 30. We see this. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Chapter 20, verse 1. Almost done. An uproar ceased. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. Again, not a special group, but the, for the Christians. That's the way it's being used. Look at verse 30. Paul says, from among your own selves will rise men, uh, rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So if you're saying this is a special group, they sure are special. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that? That seems to be what this book is about. Chapter 21, verse 4. And having sought out the disciples. Wow. Look at verse 16. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. Now, that's just a, a, a portion of what I'm getting at. But I just want to make you aware that again, when it says that we are called to make disciples, not converts, it actually means it. It's not like one term among many. That is, that's the term for a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a follower. You are part of something. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. He is actually your Lord. You're actually following his commands. You're actually on a journey. A, a, a disciple in the past was someone who was called, said to have the dust of their rabbi on their heads. Someone, when Jesus follow me, he wasn't saying convert and go about your life. He's saying continue to follow me. That's what a disciple is, a follower of Jesus, a learner, follower. There's a, a, a process involved. And again, I'll say it this way. There's no such thing as a genuine convert who's not also a disciple. Now, I want you to think about what that means for just a minute and, and the culture we're in. You say to yourself, Matt, that's what you're saying, but <clears throat> I find that troubling. I'm like, oh, do you now? Because if you stop for a minute and think, if you go back to uh, John for a minute, I just want to make this really clear. Jesus, you think to yourself, Matt, Matt, you're making a big deal out of this. And uh, maybe this isn't a big deal. But let's look at John because Jesus is going to make the same point I just spent this whole time making way more eloquently than I did. In John chapter 8, verse 31, notice what happens. Some Jews that did not actually believe are told, were told believed. John 8, 31, it says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, full stop, look at that for a second. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, John says they're believers. Now we're going to find out if you go to just keep your finger there. If you look at verse 41, that these are not actually believers. Why do we say that in 41? Look at what Jesus says to these people. He says, um, you are doing the works your father did. This is what Jesus says to those who believed him. And they said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me for I came from God and I'm here and I came out of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. And he goes on. These people are not believers. 
What John is doing is showing that their belief is not genuine. John does this all the way through. Not, only, it's only God wrought belief that's genuine belief. He's kind of doing something different. But notice what Jesus says to these people who believed in him, to the converts. who people. These are the people that walked the aisle but didn't have a change of heart. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Notice the, the, the reference, the, the, the switch. They said they had believed in him. And Jesus says, well, if you abide my word, you're truly my disciples. G- to Jesus, to be a believer is to be a disciple. To, 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 to be a believer that's not a disciple is to not be a believer at all. It's of your father. No, there's no change. That's, the, the, that's what's at stake. Do we see that? Do you understand what's at stake? We're like, I don't know if I understand what's at stake. Well, let's see if that helps us. Let's see what he says in Luke. Go to Luke chapter 14. It's so pivotal we get this. And the fact that so many of us are so casual about such egregious misappropriation of the Great Commission tells me that we are either ignorant or complicit. And that's both, neither is a place we want to be. In Luke 14, Jesus gives a parable. Now, I don't want to get into the parable too much, but I want you to notice the parable and think of the term of invitation for a minute, Okay. Jesus says, when, when one of those who reclined at table with them heard these things, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to them, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent, a, sent to his servant, say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. This is, would be speaking about Israel in this case. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I got to go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Now in Luke's gospel and what we're seen, there's seen a transition for why Jesus goes to the Gentiles, why Paul's going to the Gentiles. The people invited Israel, the Messiah comes, they don't want to go in and all the excuses are lame. They don't want the salvation offered. They're busy. And so this, in this parable, he said, well, go to the highways and the byways and grab like sort of the riffraff, which is us. <laughs> so here we come in. Right. And so he says, go quickly the streets, lanes and bring them in. Servants said, sir, what you command has been done. And still there's room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. This is, this is the great commission. This is the speaking of the great commission. Go out and compel them, convince them, share the gospel. go therefore and make disciples, bring them in. Why? For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. The, the people that didn't want to come in. It matters that we go, well, how does it matter that we're, what we're inviting them to this discipleship? It matters. And you say to yourself, well, we all want to be go to heaven, right? That's a, that's an invitation. That's like the invitation. Come in. You want to, you want to be saved. You, okay. Amen. Let's come in. But then he goes on right after saying this about an invitation, go out and compel them, right? Free gift. The salvation is a free gift. Christ paid everything. It's a free gift for us. And that's it, right? That's it. Here's your ticket to the banquet. Is that what salvation is? Well, look at what Jesus says in the very next verse. Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay. So you have this juxtaposition of invitation for all cost. Now I don't, I want to make this clear because we are not saved by paying any cost. Christ paid the cost. That's, that's not what this is about, but he's saying that what we're invited to, we have to make sure we understand what it is. Right? And so if we don't understand what it is, you can't be a disciple. To, to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ is to love him more than any other person, including mother, sister, brothers, the rest of your family. 
When someone, when we're telling someone about the gospel and we're inviting someone to be saved, we're inviting to a relationship with God that will take the place of any other important relationship in their life. That's the, that's, that's what we're inviting. There's no other form of Christianity. That's not hardcore Christianity. That's not, oh, special kind of Christianity. That is the synchronon, the basic essence of what it means to call someone out of darkness into light is to call them into a place where Jesus is the central figure in your life. And if that's not the case, you are not a Christian. That's what it's the invitation to now. You might say, well, I want to be that way. And I feel, okay, that's fine. That's not what we're talking about right now. I'm just saying what the invitation is to, that's what Jesus says. Because whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What's that mean? Bear his own cross. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he's enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish all who see it, begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. <clears throat> or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and del- deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against it with 20,000. And if not, while the other is great, uh, yet a great way off, he sends a delegation, asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean we take a vow of poverty? No. Renouncing all you have is the same as renouncing your family. You still love your family. In fact, the, the entire New Testament tells you the way we worship God is seen in how we treat our families. But the point that he's making about renouncing all we have is that there's nothing held in conjunction with Christ. That is, Christ is not one piece of the pie of your life. He is the umbrella in which everything else then it comes out. So that's kind of what he means about this picture. So to be a Christian, to understand what salvation is, is to be freed from the self-centered obligations that we made up for ourselves and to have a new master. And so, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you are going to face the wrath of God. Yes, God sent his son because he loves you. And so then what am I inviting you to do? To trust in him for what? To take your place on the cross? Yes. To pay for your sins? Yes. And then what? Peace out. Have a good life. Continue on as you were. Just bring your ticket. Make sure you don't lose it. Remember that time you walked the aisle? Stamp it. No, he saves you to be a part of him, to set you apart, to sanctify you, to make you part of his building, his body, his bride, to wash you with water, to sanctify you, to cleanse you, to make you holy so you will become like him. And then one day to give you a glorified body. That is what salvation is. It is no other thing than that. And so the idea that salvation is like this quick ticket that we just walk an aisle, do the thing, live our life like the same, that those people are worse off than someone that's not saved at all because they think they are. Paul understood discipleship. He understood, and I'm just to make this really clear. We must never forget that our mandate matters. And Paul didn't. He went back to strengthen the churches. He understood that our process of making disciples, like in other words, baptism is not the finish line of my job. It's the starting line. It's not the finish line of the Christian life. It's the starting line of the Christian life. It's the beginning of it. Right? Presbyterians say you got to baptize babies. Well, I say we baptize babies too, because when you first get saved, you get baptized and then you live your Christian life and grow up. All right. Anyways. So that's fun. Paul does that, but let's go back to our passage. The reason I'm emphasizing this so heavily is because if you look at our passage, what we really see is that Paul sees that our mission is to make disciples. He has a kill and Priscilla disciples. He made who then make a disciple, Apollos, who then goes and makes disciples. And so you see it all play out. But our, the first part I want to emphasize with our mandate matters. Our second part I want to focus on is when we go to make disciples, our maturity, the, 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 the thing we're measuring for success matters. If we're making converts, we measure merely butts in the seats. But if you're measuring maturity, how do you measure maturity? 
Maybe someone you meet is lame, but you should have seen him before. Things are going great, right? Who knows? But that's a different thing. It's hard to celebrate that as much in every case. And yet that's the, that's the standard. What do we mean by that? So if you look at verses 24 to 26, notice what happens next. So Paul now leaves Ephesus. He goes back and he's just going around the church. Now, meanwhile, we're told there's a Jew named Apollos, short for Apollonius, whatever. And he was a native of Alexandria. Now, first of all, if you're a Jew named Apollos, what kind of family did you grow up in? Right? It's a Greek name. That's kind of interesting. Like, I'm, you, get, you can read a lot into this, right? You're like, hmm. So that's like kind of a, a worldly Jewish family. Uh, and the native of Alexandria was a, a great place of learning. Okay. And so this Jew named Apollos came to Ephesus. Okay. This city that Paul's going to come back to in chapter 19. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Eloquent could also mean he's learned, but he's competent in the scriptures. In this case, we're going to see this in the Old Testament. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, understand where he stands. This is the man who understood from the baptism of John that there's one who's coming, whose strap John wasn't worthy to untie, and it is Jesus. He understood that God sent the Messiah, the Messiah is Jesus. Jesus is the promised one. Notice it says he spoke accurately, which means he didn't get the law wrong. He showed how the law was pointing to our need for repentance and the sacrifice, which then God offered by saying, behold, the Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sins of the world. That's what Apollos was teaching. And you say to yourself, Jesus himself showed his own deity and, and necessity of the resurrection from the Old Testament. Here's what Apollos is doing. But there's more to the story. There's, there's, there's a fun little section here to think for a second. Because if you just stopped there, you would know something, but then more transpired. Right? He didn't understand fully the church, let's say. He didn't understand fully what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to have be in Christ. He didn't understand some of the things Christ might have said, what the resurrection implies and means ultimately, that Jesus rose up and told him to go there for and make disciples. He didn't understand a lot of what it means to be in Christ. And I would argue, it, just conjecture for a moment, but this eloquent um, uh, Apollos, I believe he was a believer who was just deficient in his knowledge. I think that eventually he was the guy that ended up writing the book of Hebrews. That's my guess. But, you know, if you notice the way he describes uh, the Old Testament and stuff, it's eloquent. That's pure conjecture. I don't even want to talk about it. Don't send me an email. But, uh, but in, in other words, this guy's really great, but he's, he's really great with Revelation like 1.0. Like he didn't get the rest of it. And so verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So he's speaking to the Jews. But when Priscilla and Aquila... Paul's disciples, right? Heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. There's so much going on here. First of all, these uh, Achille and Priscilla might have been a disciple by Paul, but they don't have a title. They're just people. They're just congregants. They're laymen. Not laymen, but laymen. They're not professionals. They're just people. And notice that they take him aside quietly. Now, we're going to see this in just a minute, but I understand here that when they, when they take him aside, they explain to him the way of God more accurately. Now, they probably weren't as eloquent as him or learned as him in many ways, but they knew more than him nonetheless. And so they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, I just want to make sure we don't miss this. Why does maturity matter? Well, first of all, how did Apollos, who we're going to see as a very big figure in Christianity, learn the things he learned? Did Paul sit down with him and teach him? No. Not directly. He did through Aquila and Priscilla. In other words, Paul's investment in their life became an investment in Apollo's life because Aquila and Priscilla then were able to teach what Paul taught to him. 
When you make a disciple who then makes a disciple, it's important that that disciple that I'm making is able to see maturity because that person is then like, I trust them to go forward and go out. Like, I trust you all to go out and make disciples, right? I trust that my teaching to you is going to re- reach to you, you teaching others, right? You, that's, gonna, that's what happened with the kill and Priscilla. Like, maturity matters. And that goes back to what we know. If you go to Ephesians chapter 4, again, you know these verses, but look at them again. Ephesians 4, this is our aim when we think about the church for a moment. Look, this is our aim in the church. And why would that aim be important? Well, here you just saw the fruit of maturity, Right? The kill and Priscilla teaching Apollos, who's now going to go teach others. This is the fruit of, of, if they were, let me go back one step. If Aquila and Priscilla were mere converts who merely walked an aisle, made a decision and peace out, have a good life. And they meet Apollos, what would the, the best they could say was, that sounds great. They have no discernment. I also know another guy who's great. That's cool. You guys should get together and have coffee. Like that's the best you could get. That's the best you get. You should meet them. He's really into scripture too. Right? That's all you got. But if you look at Ephesians 4.11, look at what our job is. This is Paul writing. He says this. Uh, God gave us apostles, prophets, uh, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Okay, ready to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me make this really clear. You say you, you hear these things. That's what you're entitled to, Christian, but it's also what the church is made to do, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what? For what purpose? So that we would grow up. So that we would grow up. He says it multiple times. So we would grow up. We'd build up the body, right? Just grow our muscles. So we'd mature manhood, right? So we may no longer be children, which are what? Tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine, right? So we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head. This message of growing up is the job of maturity. It's the job of the path of discipleship is to be mature in Christ, right? And so that's the good job. But here's the problem. I mentioned the boomers for saying, I talked to this on Tuesday night. Okay, ready? So after World War II, Right? Prior to World War II, high school was not mandatory in, in this country. It wasn't mandatory at all. And so not everyone went to high school. It wasn't even a thing. But after World War II, the baby boom happened. That's where the baby boomers are, boomers. Uh, and all of a sudden, high school became mandatory in the United States. Late 1940s, right? High school became a mandatory thing. And so now all of a sudden, for the first time in history, giant numbers of people the same age were in school at the same time. And so the, for the first time in history, the term teenager was developed. The word teenager was not a word until baby boomers came along. Baby boomers, you were the first teenagers in human history. Amen. We'll see. I don't know if that's an amen or not. No, no offense. It's not your fault. For the first time in history, you had an identity that was separate from your family and church. And it was identity among your peer groups. And people said, wait, this group teenager, we can advertise to, we can pander to. And what is it that teenagers want constantly? I'm restless and I want to explore and I want to see things. I'm tossed to and fro. And I'm like, well, here's a product. Well, there's a product. Well, now you're the most important. Well, here's this cup. And we want to pander to that. Now, here's the thing. Culture panders all the time, but churches have pandered to that to the max. And so what used to be youth group has now become youth church. Why is just youth evangelism is just youth evangelicalism. What used to be youth group is now church. We pandered to it. And here's the challenge we're going to see. This pandering, this, this emphasis on, on sort of pandering to youth-oriented pictures of Christ and the, a, a new fund. It's not your grandfather's church. Well, that's bad, right? Because we want to mature into our grandfather's church. That's the whole point. 
And we lost that because it goes to mature. None of the, none of the, the language here is, is sexy language, if you, would, if you will, in church growth world. Priscilla and Aquila taught, they were taught by Paul, and Apollos was taught by Priscilla and Aquila, which implies that they had a maturity to pass something on. Maturity truly matters. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, remember I mentioned we were going to go there, 1 Corinthians 3. We looked latter to it, but let's look at the earlier part. 1 Corinthians 3, 1. Again, we're supposed to grow up, but notice in the Corinthian case, they, this is what immaturity looks like. He was, Paul says, I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So immaturity is being people of the flesh. It means being worldly. In other words, we're supposed to become more holy, less worldly. Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Again, in, like children, and you're thinking, is being infant in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way or behaving merely in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? So notice how Apollos and, and Achilla and Priscilla handle themselves in contrast to the Corinthians. For example, Achilla and Priscilla recognize that Apollos is a good teacher. They recognize he's teaching accurately, but he's missing some things. You know what they don't do? They didn't start a campaign to smear the guy and say, this guy's disqualified. Let's get rid of him. They didn't spread it around and share it on, the, on their discernment ministries. They didn't send it out to everybody to destroy this man. They went and took him aside privately and taught him more accurately the things. And notice Apollos' maturity and being willing to learn from laymen saying these things. In both cases, you see maturity on display. There's a genuineness. What does a genuine Christian in this case look like? Someone in this mature sense. When Paul says they're not behaving in a merely human way, they didn't just try to destroy this guy, tear him down, rip him apart, saying he's disqualified because he knows these things. They take him aside with discernment and raise him up because this guy wasn't an enemy of the church. He just didn't know everything he needed to know. Right? Understand though, the other thing, the smear campaigns and the rest, that's what the world does. And that's also what children do. Children will destroy their friends for that brownie right? Like, oh yes, brother, sister, we love you. Like, I want the brownie. Like, I want their peace. They're like, they're going to starve. Like, that's okay. We're not meant to act like children. If you go to chapter 14, verse 20, Paul says, don't, don't think like children, right? Again, Paulos, you don't need to turn there, but um, it didn't think like children. Neither of them did. There's a picture of maturity, not only in them learning and growing and sharing their faith, but in how they acted and how they thought. But I mentioned before, go to Hebrews five though. This is where I do want to linger for just a brief second. And again, I did cover this on a Tuesday night recently, and I, I probably scared people. And when I preached this passage, I scared people. I put a link to it in the sermon, so if you want to be more scared of it, you can. I'm not meaning to, but this is one of the scariest passages. I would say this passage is the most scary passage in the Bible for where we sit as evangelicals today in America. Let me explain. The passage is about something, that, uh, the subject of the passage is not what the scary part is. Let me explain. Paul, or in this case, possibly Apollos, but the author of Hebrews, whomever it may be, says this. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since he is a child, 
But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Notice verse 14, the contrast here is what we're aiming at. This is supposed to be normative for every believer in Jesus Christ is that what? That our powers of discernment would be trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's not a special kind of person with like a cape on. This is for you. He goes on, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washing the laying on of hands at the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. He's not saying let's move on from the gospel. He's saying let's move on from having to prove the necessity of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Like he's like, can we move? Can we, can we stop trying to prove it? Can we stop trying to prove every day in church that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Can we actually acknowledge he's the only way of salvation and now follow that way? That's what he's saying in this passage. Do I have to keep telling you that you don't need to follow the law to be saved? He goes this for it's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again, the son of God to their own harm, holding them up to contempt. Now, what he's saying here is terrible. He's saying it's impossible in the case who've once been enlightened. Now I would say the word, the best way to translate this is to enlightened like this enlightened one that once heard the truths of scripture, right? Who have tasted the heavenly gift. They've received in some sense, the instruction of the Holy word. Right? And they've shared in the Holy Spirit. In this case, it doesn't mean they're indwelled. It means they've shared in the blessings of God's Holy Spirit around them. Like you could be in this church as a non believer and be fully blessed. Just by the people around you, by the word, you'll hear good things. You'll, you'll like it. You know, you look at a handsome guy talking for an hour. It's like this exciting, <laughs> you know, beneficial. But he says, if these things happen, you've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. You've gotten a preview of it, which is what the church is. And then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying again, once again, the Son of God. Now, let me explain really quickly, just as an aside. This is not a sermon or a, a passage about losing your salvation. But doesn't it say that? Well, okay, let me say this. There's people in the, in the Christian world that believe you can lose your salvation. Well, if they were going to be consistent and said you could lose it, well, here you could never get it back again. So no, I don't know anyone that says that. That's not what this is saying. This is saying for those who have tasted these things, Right? And, and they, they, it's impossible to bring them to repentance. Why? Why, 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 why? Because he says this, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop, useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And Paul's, or the author says, now we speak this to this way in your case, we feel sure of better things. In other words, this could be merely just a hypothetical in general. But the goal here in the speaking is this. The problem that you have is, and this is what's so terrifying. Immaturity in this case is so terrifying because he says this. If you can be up in this church for this many years and handle this word for this many years and remain immature... Not only does it tell me that this word hasn't affected you, not only tell me that you're not saved, but there's nothing I could do to bring you to be saved because the very word that you've crapped upon for the last 10, 20 years of your life, I have the only thing I can bring you and you've already handled that so poorly and, and brought thorns and thistles. What left is there? 
And it tells you that the most terrifying thing in this case is a deep-seated immaturity that refuses to grow. In other words, he says, you should be teachers, but you're immature. Now, here's the problem. We say to ourselves, well, I want to be mature, maybe I'm not. Okay, fine. But that's not what I'm emphasizing here. Here's what I want to emphasize. The challenge today is not that Christians are immature. The challenge today is that in the evangelical church, churches are aiming at immaturity. It's what we want. We don't want people to be mature. We want them to buy the product, to come to the thing, to buy the album, to hear the stuff, make them pay their tithe, do their thing. But we don't want them to be mature and discerning. We don't spend any effort on it. We're literally aiming at entertainment. We're aiming at these things, and it's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing because we're aiming to bring people to an immature place. And that's the idea here. The big problem that we see this is, the, is again, this perpetual youth-oriented thing. We are meant to grow up, and the idea that we would aim to not grow up it's a terrifying, terrifying thing. Our maturity truly, truly matters. And the fruit of it is glorious. Which leads me to my last case. Because here's, I said all these scary things. Let me say nice things. So Apollos is excited because he gets blessed by the teaching. And he learns. And so we're told in verse 27... Um, when he'd wished to, so after they teach him here, it says that when, when he wished, when Apollos wished to cross to Acacia, the brothers encouraged him. Obviously he knew what was going on. And so the brothers, the entire church here encouraged Apollos. And then they wrote the disciples to welcome him. There's a reference to the disciples again. So here's Apollos. They don't just send him off on his own, but they write to him to go and to welcome Apollos when he comes. And when he arrives, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And how did he help? For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Apollos was used. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out in this last bit. I mentioned that our mandate matters, that we're making disciples. Like, this is what we're called to. That's, that's obvious. It's almost a truism, right? It's obvious. But the second part, that maturity matters, that's our measure. We have to make sure that's what we're aiming at, right? But in this third case, how do we get there? Like, our met- what's our methodology, in other words? And I love this, because the first, the first part I want to deal with is, if you stop and think about what's happening in our passage, notice how different all the people that have been discipled are. Aquila and Priscilla benefit from Paul and can teach and are mature from Paul's teaching and can pass it on, but they don't look like Paul. They're a couple. They're laymen. They're not, they're not like mini Pauls. And then when they pour into Apollos, Apollos is not like a mini Aquila and Priscilla, and he's not a mini Paul. He doesn't go on on his own missionary journeys to start new churches like Paul did. He goes back to strengthen the church. In other words, Apollos looks totally different than Paul does. The, the, what, what am I getting at right now? If you look at 1 Corinthians 3, go there briefly. I want you to remember, don't miss this. This is a big, big point. This is a point that might make some of you not happy, but it should be pretty obvious. And I'm not throwing anyone under the bus directly. But notice what Paul says to the Corinthians who, who were divided. They say, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants from whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Now notice how he talks about discipleship. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. If we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So remember I told you our task is to make disciples, but here's the problem. So, the challenge with the youth-oriented culture is like what you call them with is what you call them to. That's kind of the, the phrase. So if you call people to the bait and switch, that's what you give them. That's what life is, a bait and switch. So you just like keep having better bait. 
But when you think about this idea of, of calling them to something, the opposite connection is saying, well, you know what? We need to have discipleship in this church. So we're going to start a new discipleship ministry. And what it is, is I'm going to make a disciple and then you're going to make a disciple and then you're going to make a disciple. And what we do is we, we conceive of discipleship as a multi-level marketing scheme, a pyramid scheme. I make one and then you make one and you make one and you make one and you make one. And then basically everyone's a little Paul. Everyone's a little pastor. Everyone's a little thing. Everyone has to produce the next thing. It's uniformity. And then you get the pink Cadillac and then you get the thing and then you can buy the Mary Kay. And then you get like, that's not what discipleship is. It doesn't look, they don't look the same. Paul didn't make a mini Paul. He made a kill and Priscilla. A kill and Priscilla did not make many, many kill and Priscilla. They made an Apollos. And Apollos went and did a different ministry entirely. And Paul tells in Corinthians, they all did different things. In other words, let me just say this really simply. Discipleship is a group project. So I might make disciples, but the goal is that we produce, but it's not like I make a disciple and you make a disciple and you make a disciple. Like that's not what the Bible's showing. We all have different aspects here. Apollos went back to strengthen and, and, and help a church that existed. He had a different ministry than Paul. Why is this so important is if discipleship is not a, a multi-level marketing scheme and if it's not just a mere formal course, how do we do this thing? Because if we just say, well, here, follow this. And when you get your degree, then you go here and then you do this and you make another school and then they get the degree. If it's not that, what is it? Well, look at chapter four of first Corinthians. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have met countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urged you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy. Now, what's going on? I would argue that we're, what we see in our passage is that Paul makes disciples who make disciples who make disciples. How? And I would argue it's through the personal investment of our lives. Because what you, remember I said it works both ways. What you call them with is what you're calling them to. If we're calling someone to mere conversion through a bait and switch, you know, whatever, that's what I'm calling them to. And that's all they're going to expect. That's what Christianity is. But if I'm going to call people to discipleship, I have to be in it myself. I have to be part of this idea myself. I have to be part of this group project of maturing in the faith. And that's where I call people to. It is a, a group project. Now, how does it look? How's it wrought forward. I mentioned it's the personal investment of our lives. And you say to yourself, does that mean the discipleship is only informal? Well, right now, if you're here, like some of you say, well, I want to hang out with you, Matt. I'm like, I, I, if I had to have coffee with everybody, I wouldn't exist. I was like, I, like I would just <laughs> die. My investment formally in you right now is teaching. And there's plenty of opportunity for formal teaching. But the, the thing that we tend to de-emphasize because it's not a formula, we can't measure it, is that hanging out imitation part where Paul says, I want you to imitate my faith. That means you can see him, his life. And he says, but since I'm not there, I'm going to send Timothy. Why? So you can imitate his faith. So you can see someone to follow. If you look at people that play sports, not just in their uniforms, but in the way they act outside the sport, they all kind of act the same. Crossfitters kind of act like crossfitters, right? I don't know what rugby players act like, but I'm sure they're the same, but basketball players, I don't know. And one, I don't know what they act like as a basketball player. No idea. But people tend to fit their subcultures, okay? The, the hipsters tend to dress like hipsters. The goths tend to dress like goths, right? The, the, you know, the day traders dress like day traders. I have no idea. But the, you, people all kind of go around. They, they, they imitate each other. It's natural. And so this passage of imitation and following is really what discipleship is at its heart. It's following and imitating, which is what you want your kids to do. The little duckling that follows along. And so that's what discipleship is. But that implies that we have to invest ourselves in personally relating to one another. We cannot make a best friend class for you because there's no such thing. You have to live your life together and be around each other in your life to imitate one another. In fact, in Colossians chapter two, 
And that's exactly what Apollos is doing. That's, but hey, we're writing to you personally. They're welcoming you in. This is not like a formal, we're having a conference and he's invited. Paul writes to the Colossians and he says this. Um, chapter two, verse one, he goes, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that allow to see and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That's really what Paul was doing, going around strengthening the churches. That's what Apollos went and did is to strengthen the churches. What does it mean to strengthen the churches? Is it just doctrine? I want to strengthen the church with doctrine. Well, that's true. But what is, the, what is it supposed to lead to? It's supposed to lead to, ready? Here's the point. That our hearts, our hearts. Now, this is what's crazy. Not some vague group, but you in this room. Our hearts are supposed to be knit together in love. Like the God of the universe who exists is here among us. And he wants discipleship maturity to look like our hearts be knit together in love, which means your name tag doesn't suffice. It means that at some point you will know people and you have to get to know people. And if you come in and say, well, I don't have this for me. I'm like, then I don't know where you think you are. But the idea that we're having to knit our hearts together with Christ. Now, here's the key. If you look at chapter three of Colossians, verse 12, and this is where we see this play out. This is where we're going to end it today. Paul says, God, put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another and all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, I would argue among one another in particular, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This little section 12 to 17 is a picture of, I would argue, the discipleship community. It's a picture of what a church is meant to be. And remember I said what you invite them with is what you invite them to Bringing someone to faith is inviting them to that. Let me say it again. If you, if, if you, if you're going to make disciples, what are we inviting them to? That people with compassionate hearts that are kind, humble and meek and patient with each other. People that are bearing with one another. When people have complaints against each other, we're forgiving each other. That is not a, the church isn't just a corporation where I'm the manager and you give your complaints to me. And we try to serve you. Like notice the way this is explained here. And all these put on love, which binds everything. This is what discipleship is. This is the process. This is the place. And it's going to cost a little bit. Now, obviously Christ paid the cost of the cross, but it's going to cost you something to bear with one another. It costs you something, but it's the most worthy cost there is. What do I mean by that? Discipleship, like conversion merely, as we say it, is just the bait and switch invitation to life as you've always lived it with a ticket. But discipleship is an invitation to a supernatural relationship with God himself through his body, the church. Right now. It's an invitation to a life of purpose and eternal relationships. When you put your faith in Christ, you're not saved on your own place in space. You're saved into a body. Apollos was welcomed by Achille and Priscilla, sent with a letter to welcome to the church. They're, they're combined already. It's an invitation to a re-enchanted life where you're part of a real and eternal family more permanent than anything wrought by blood or common interest right now. And when Jesus says, follow me, this is what he's inviting us to. 
And this is what we're inviting others to. But for us to invite others to that, we have to be part of it ourselves. Let me pray. Father, as we look at this wonderful passage and we see the, the dynamic at play, um, I know there's so many uh, Christians and people in this, this, this place that we've grown up and heard a, a sort of a corporate Christianity. This picture of discipleship, this, this maturity, this aim, this mandate to make disciples, um, it seems like a, a, maybe a, a nuance, that, but it's not. It's a, a really big deal. And I pray that we would understand. I pray for those that don't know you today that they would see that there's an invitation, not only to have their sins washed away, not only to be saved from the wrath of God, but an invitation to be a part of a family, to be part of a body of which you are the head, to be a part of a building where, in which you dwell, to be part of a bride that is being sanctified and one day will be unified with the groom in a glorified body. Father, I pray that as we invite people, as you sit here right now, if you're not a believer, that you hear these things and recognize we are inviting you to be a part of something now. And you would see it and you would put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. And for those of us who are believers, who are disciples right now, I pray we would understand what that means and you would help us to repent of the sort of silly corporate views we might have of the church and that we would reinvest ourselves in just the people around us. Not in the programs, not in the upcoming events, but just in the normal people around us. We would entwine our lives and we would knit our hearts together with one another. For after all, what are we inviting people to? Father, if we want to be better at evangelism, help us to be better at knowing what we're inviting them into. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.